Every moment is valuable, and, and we thank you, Stuart, for, for being here for us as a chance just to, uh, to hear from you. And my thought was, hey, you've, you've been in really one of the leaders in the Christian counseling um, ministry uh, as it started in the last really 20, 30 years is when it's come of age, I think, uh, Nank and some others. And uh, to have that kind of a voice available to us, um, there's a broad spectrum that certainly is covered by Christian counseling. And there's Christian, there's counselors who call themselves Christians who are not of the similar mindset. So I thought it might be good for us first to almost start off with a lot of people really don't understand what neuthetic counseling is versus integrated counseling. And if you could explain really the difference between those two and what it is that you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it through the ministries you've been a part of. Uh, yes. About uh, two years ago, a book came out, one of the critical thinking books called uh, Christianity, Psychology and Christianity, uh, Four Perspectives. This uh, past year, another book came out, and a revised edition with five perspectives. And it's supposed to reflect all the different views of Christian counseling, people who call themselves Christians who counsel. And... Uh, there's an integrated view. Actually, there's a few of them that are integrated. And what that means is uh, rather than use the Bible alone for what the Bible claims to be sufficient for, which are matters of the heart, uh, they'll say um, what man has to say is just as important or more important than what the Bible has to say. And so psychology is usually the study of a, of a person, how they act, what they do, how they think. And that's exactly what the Bible addresses. And so they are in the backyard, so to speak. They're on our turf with psychology. A little different than medicine, where you're dealing with the, the body. But the inner man that the Bible calls the heart, the Bible addresses. Man, who man is, man's problem, and man's solution. And so the secular theorists in counseling, uh, they are against God. The secular theorists are against God. They don't believe the Bible. Well, they believe we evolved. And then they come up with, they think, man, who man is, evolved animal. And man's problems are nature and nurture. It's either your family messed you up or your body messed you up or both. And so it's all human observation. There's no real hard science, usually in most of psychology. There's some of it that's a little more testable. But it's just human observation. It's called soft science. And so what happens in Christian counseling is well-meaning, I think well-meaning people who believe in the Lord, they study the secular thought and theory and then say how can we make all this work rather than going to scripture and saying what does God say about man, man's problem and solution and so then they try to integrate and usually what happens when you integrate is you don't really integrate psychology becomes what's most important and the Bible is downplayed anytime you add to scripture you take away from scripture uh, what I found in early on in ministry was I started asking people who went to Christian counselors 
what's going on? And they all had fish logos on their business cards, you know. And what goes on there? And I began to ask them, do they pray with you? And this is just the area we were in, the capital city of South Carolina, Columbia. Do they pray with you? No. Do they use the Bible at all? No. And I I was shocked. Zonda remembers that. I was utterly shocked. You mean all of the the ones that they, you know, the different ones were going to in the area, what were they doing then when you would meet with them? Well, they would ask me how I feel. A psychiatrist would would ask that and then update the medicine and then charge an enormous amount of money. Uh, Others were using regression therapy, you know, going back to your, where you have pent-up emotion. One was given a a stuffed animal, uh, take your anger out on it. It's just all kinds of practices. One was doing hypnosis. I'm thinking, this is all under Christian counseling. And that, that led me to say, there's, there's got to be more to helping people and the church deal with Christians who have difficulties, have problems. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah, hopefully that explains a little bit of, of a difference between them. I know that uh, we did the parenting series with uh, Ted Tripp oh, yeah. on uh, one of the major tenets is, is looking at the heart, not just looking at the behavior, but looking at the heart and dealing with the heart, and that's what you're addressing here. Right. Um, Obviously, it's out of the wellspring of the heart is what the mind speaks. Are there any other verses that you use as the major thrust for the teaching and and how you bring that about? Yes, the Proverbs 4.23, guard the heart from out of it flow the issues of life, is an Old Testament text. The New Testament text would be Mark 7, 21 and following, where Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your heart. Now, the challenge with that is, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the heart isn't a very good place, right? The heart is disobedient, it's doomed, it's depraved, uh, it's just wicked, uh, deceitful and desperately sick, uh, Jeremiah tells us. So, And it's a heart of stone. And so unless God does a work there with the gospel, you, you can't really counsel an unbeliever. They don't have the ability to have the Spirit of God, understand the Word of God, and do the Word of God unless their hearts changed. And so the number of people that I've met with over the years who are not believers, it was talking to them about Jesus and their need for Christ. And when God saved some of them uh, that I know of, their heart changed, and now they were receptive, and the Spirit's there, and now they can take God's Word and, and grow and change in it. But Mark would be a, Mark 7 would be another key passage. And there's a lot of other ones. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 23, it says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which is the heart. Mind and heart are very synonymous in Scripture. Good, good, thank you. Um, <clears throat> as, we, as we look at the world around us, I'm sure... All of us are affected by issues that are, are difficult, and we don't know how to deal with them. And I know as a church, we've been through quite a bit, and it, it made me think of, of some of the stuff we've been through here. And there's two aspects that, as we've talked with some of those who have left, uh, the, some of those who are here, we've had to deal with two issues. And I, I appreciate if you comment. We're going to get into your questions as well in just a few minutes. But first on forgiveness, 
what exactly forgiveness is. Well, repentance. You hit repentance first. And from a biblical counselor's perspective, what are you looking for in repentance? And then forgiveness. And what are, the, what are those two and how do they work interchanged with each other? Yeah, repentance precedes forgiveness. Uh, and repentance is acknowledging your sin before God and before the person you sinned against, saying the same thing that God says about it. It was sinful. Um, it dishonored, brought a dishonor to God. Uh, it was a breach. Uh, that's what sin is. It's a sort of a separates you. And then repentance is now turned by faith towards Christ and saying, this is what I, I need to do and I will do by God's help that's opposite of the sin. So when a person makes a confession, oftentimes it's, I'm sorry. Well, sorry for what? I'm sorry you're offended. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, it's caused a big mess. I'm sorry uh, Sorry, you feel bad. Uh, it, it, it's not usually a good confession. But when a person says, for example, if I said to my wife, Honey, I've sinned against you, against God and against you. I, I said things that were unedifying. They were hurtful. They didn't build up. It was sinful. Ephesians 4.29 and instead, I want to say things that build you up. I want to say things that encourage you. I, I sin. Would you please forgive me? That helps her know I, I named the sin, what was wrong, what I should be doing instead of that. Will you please forgive me? It makes it easy for, easier for people to forgive when someone has a good biblical confession. Right? Apologizing. I don't know what that means either, because technically it means to give a defense. Apologia means to give a defense. You don't want to do that when you're confessing sin. So I apologize. Well, uh, for what? And if someone gets defensive when you ask them, you know, say, I'm sorry, and you say, for what? You know, could you help me? If they get defensive and angry, that's a good sign they're not repentant. Uh, a repentant person ought to say, oh, I did this wrong and this is what I really should be doing instead. I mean, it's a brokenness and a turn. Now, a person's heart, a Christian's heart, ought to always be willing to forgive. Always willing to forgive. That, that's what love is towards people. I love you. I'm always willing to forgive you. God is willing to forgive. But I believe forgiveness is based on a condition of repentance, of a confession and repentance. And you go and you say, please forgive me. Absolutely. And we're to forgive like God forgives. Quickly, repeatedly, lavishly. Uh, if you remember the parable in Matthew 18 about the king who had a servant who owed so much money. The servant owned up to his debt. Said, yep, I, I have that debt. He asked for mercy. Please have mercy on me. And the king forgave his debt. Then he goes to another servant, remember that, who owed a little bit. That servant owned up to his little debt and said, please have mercy on me. And that servant, the first one, would not forgive the second individual. That's unforgiveness, right? That's being unforgiving. But the king said, I forgave your debt because, very key word in that parable, because you pleaded for mercy. 
because you owned up to it. You, you, you owned up. I have this debt because you did that. The king's heart was willing to, and you, you confess that, I forgive you. So having a heart that's filled with love for people, always willing to forgive. So repentance precedes forgiveness. And then once it's forgiven, then it's covered. Then it's buried. You don't bring it up, rehearse it, talk to other people about it. That's probably an aspect that maybe you could even clarify a little bit better, not bringing it back up. If we've been offended and somebody's asked for forgiveness, we've forgiven them, then not bringing it up, uh, and I've even heard it as threefold, to God, to the other pe- anybody else, and then to the person that offended, but then also to ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes we get trapped in our own sin, where we're the ones that get the most hurt by our own sin because of that. Can you elaborate a little bit? Yes, it comes from Jeremiah 31, where the Lord chooses to remember our sins no more. He doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't say, I wonder what Stuart did yesterday. I can't remember. Oh, he remembers. He just chooses to remember it no more. And both Jay Adams, John MacArthur, in their books on forgiveness, talk about the three aspects that, that you mentioned, Grant, of when you forgive someone. Now, remember, they have a proper confession. You know they know what the sin was and what the right thing to do is. And that makes it a lot easier to forgive. What's harder is when they say, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you. You don't know what all just went on there. It may, that makes it harder. But let's say they give you a full confession, you say, I forgive you. You are promising three things. That, number one, you're not going to bring it up to them again, which is getting, they call it, getting historical on people. Right? Get their history. You just keep bringing it up. And it hurts them. Number two, you don't bring it up to other people and start talking to other people. Can you believe what so-and-so did? No, they ask for forgiveness. You don't do that. So you don't bring it up to them to hurt them. You don't bring it up to other people. And third, is, as you mentioned, is the hardest, I think, is what do you do when it comes back to your own mind? And that's when we tend to rehearse the hurt, the offense against us, rather than love is going to think more about them and God. If I love them, I'm more interested in their faith and their growth and that they're bringing glory to God. And when there's hurt there, you say, you know, it was hard. But I'm thankful they confessed it. And I'm praying that they'll continue to grow and get others focused, not rehearsing it yourself. And you're really sinning when you do that. Um, it, what's most important to you is you, rather than loving them and loving God. Faith that's growing will be others-minded and God-focused, not self-focused. Remember, that's unbelief that gets very self-focused. Good. That's helpful, isn't it, to think that way? Because we often automatically slide into thinking of ourselves. Um, Turn the corner a little bit. Um, What do you feel about each member of the church being a counselor, having and being equipped to the level of helping each other? Biblically, where where is that found, and, and how do you feel to what level that should be, that we all should be trained at a certain level? Uh, the Bible, especially in the New Testament, there are approximately 38 one another's. And you are the subject. Not God's not going to do it for you. 
he will help us do the 38 one another's. So we need to pray for one another, help one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, all of those one another's in the Bible, about 38 of them. That needs to go on with every member in the church. We all need to be obedient to those one another's. That right there, every, every time we open our mouth, we're counseling. Right? We're, we're giving instruction or help or encouragement. We're always counseling when we open up our mouth. So we're either doing it in a good way or we're not very good counselors. And so on that level, all of the body of Christ should be practicing those one another's. That's just a healthy body. Then in that body, you'll have certain ones that are more equipped. They've just been involved in experiences and counseling situations where they're a little more trained. The pastors, elders, ought to be the most equipped because their job in Ephesians 4 is to equip the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. But there's a, and this is where a, a, a burden of mine is, most pastors aren't equipped because in seminaries, most of the seminaries, we're taught to refer. Uh, two seminaries I've been into, been involved in as far as taking studies taught me to refer. And that's what I did. I was taught, you preach the word, and when people have problems, refer them out. Uh, so the pastors need to to get equipped and, and elders and then you'll have they'll be helping others underneath them which are going to be those who are a little more maybe experienced or gifted but all need to, to counsel and practice the one another so you almost have three levels of uh, in a congregation all of those who are practicing the one another's some of them are a little more skilled a little more gifted and then you have the pastors who need to be doing, well, some of kind of some of everything uh, in, in the shepherding role. Can we have you check Steve out for us? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to give you guys a few minutes at least to ask some questions. And this isn't a, you know, I have an aunt so-and-so who's got this problem and how to do it. Try to think more generally on issues that, that have just been in the back of your mind of things that you want. You know what, can you give me some insight on a specific issue? Because this is your bent. So those, you have a question, David? One second, let me get this to David. Uh, you spoke a little earlier about forgiveness, and that comes after confession, and I think you're talking believer to believer. Can you speak, uh, what scripture ha- speak to what Scripture has to say about forgiving non-believers right. who have transgressed you and where we should stand on that? Yes, and that is a more challenging of a question because the scripture doesn't say a lot about our interaction with unbelievers other than loving the unsaved. It says, love your enemies, do good to them, Uh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If an enemy slaps you on one, one cheek, you turn the other cheek. That's more with unbelievers with brothers and sisters in Christ, then we have all of the, what we do in Matthew 18 and loving them, restoring them, go to them. So how do you deal with an unbeliever? There is one approach, a biblical counseling approach. I don't agree with it, but it's in print that you don't forgive an unbeliever because they can't repent. 
I don't think that's going to build bridges with your neighbor. If a neighbor is drunk and trashes my yard and comes over the next day and says, oh, man, I'm really sorry about uh, what I did to your yard. Uh, sorry. And I am not going to say to them, to him, well, I can't forgive you because uh, you can't repent. I, I don't think that's going to go very, again, building bridges with the neighbor. I think a, an unbeliever can stop doing something that's specifically that's wrong, right? They, they can. The old man can stop something, but that's not repentance. Repentance is putting on the right thing. So what I would say to my neighbor is, oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I'm praying for an opportunity to say, you know why it's so easy for me to do that? I'm going to look for an opportunity to present Christ to him of how God has forgiven me so much. So dealing with unbelievers, the scripture doesn't have a lot to say on this kind of relationship because all unbelievers can do for the most part is sin. They have to sin. They're under the law of sin and they love to sin. So I'm not expecting a lot out of unbelievers other than what by nature they are, if that makes much sense. So um, I just wanted to see what your point is. I, I kind of know where you come from on this, but just the actual practical steps. And like, so if you're in a discipling or a counseling scenario with somebody and they're a professing believer, but it becomes apparent through your conversation that they're, they're not a believer, but they have all the intellectual knowledge um, how do you maneuver that conversation to present the gospel to somebody who already has that head knowledge, if you will, of it, but not the saving faith? Yes, there is a, a passage in Luke. I want to say it's Luke uh, 13. The parable of the barren fig tree. It said, and a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the fine dresser, look for three years now. I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now that parable is specifically about Christ coming for three years of ministry and his own people rejected him. So let's keep being patient, work with the nation of Israel, and see if there'll be bear fruit. And there was after Pentecost. A secondary application you could pull out of that parable is when I'm working with someone who says they're a Christian, but there's no fruit. There's no life that manifests that that's genuine. Don't just say, well, there's no fruit, so you're not a believer. People may not, they may be little faith for a long time because they have not grown. They haven't been discipled. They don't know the answers. They have poor theology. And that's the point of the parable. Let me work intensely with it, which is called counseling. Discipleship counseling is intensive discipleship. Let me get in your life to make sure biblically, doctrinally, you're thinking right with the scriptures and the spirit of God is there and you have the scripture there and I'm trying to encourage you to implement it and apply it with the spirit enabling all of this, there should become, some fruit should be produced. So what I say to someone who makes a profession and there hasn't been much of a life there, 
to back it up. I'll tell them after I go over the gospel with them, and I do that with every person I meet with. I walk through the gospel with them. So, well, I already know the gospel. Well, then you won't mind rehearsing it again. I want to make sure they've heard the gospel. And I will say to them, I will take you, if they say, yes, I am a Christian, I do trust in Christ alone, I will take you at your profession unless your habitual actions or attitude deny it. And now I'm going to, as best as I can do, make sure you're, you're thinking right biblically, your questions are answered, and you can obey. And if they don't, habitually, not just one snapshot, but the movie strip film, unless your habitual actions or attitude deny it, I'm going to take you at your profession. So let's get busy. It's sort of like that first year of really intensive work. And I get that from Titus 1.16 about false teachers who make a profession, but it says their disobedient deeds deny their profession. Their habitual disobedient deeds knock out their profession. Not a snapshot. The movie strip film. Just as a follow-up, so after you've gotten to that point, it's just a, you're really just evangelizing them again at that point if you're there. Is that, is that right? Yes, and the gospel is always on the front burner because we live in light of that. So it, it just keeps right up there. And if, they, if it denies it, then I'm going to come back to call their que- into question their faith. You know, we've been working for the past six months, eight months, uh, um, and there's nothing, and I'm getting just the opposite. So we really need to go back to the foundation. The, the superstructure's not looking very good, so let's go back to the foundation. And just why do you think you're a believer if you're not trusting and obeying him? And, yeah. Some Some individuals, and... Zandra and I have, you know, worked with some very difficult situations, and um, there's ups and downs. I mean, there are times where you take a snapshot of how they're how they're responding and living, and you think there's no way they're a believer. But when you back up, you see some growth, and it's that patience with them, and not quick to write them off if they do something that's not right. It's that's the way the Lord is with us, but sometimes we're real too quick to pull the plug and say, oh, they're an unbeliever, and it doesn't always mean that. One of the key elements I've heard that you've made as part of your counseling is homework, which is not too typical. A lot of counselors don't do that, or even Christian counselors. Maybe you can explain how the value of that and, and what some of that might be. Yes, um, if you remember uh, James chapter 1 says, a hearer of the word without doing it. What happens when someone hears the word and then doesn't do it? It says they're deceived. They think they're spiritually growing, but they're not. And so homework, you can call them growth projects. Call them faith growth projects rather than homework. Homework has some repressed memories that we have from school. But it's growing our faith means we need to obey what God's word says and give real practical steps and helps for them to do during the week. After you meet with them, here are some things you need to be reading, applying, memorizing, meditating on, working through some things with them. Uh, When John the Baptist preached his message of repentance, if you remember, three groups came up to him. The crowd came up to him and said, what should we do? 
with what that message of repentance. And he said, you who have two tunics, share with him who has none. He gave them specific assignments. And it wasn't the same assignments for all three groups because the the uh, tax collectors came up to John the Baptist and said, what should we do? And he said, oh, don't collect more than you're supposed to. Real specific homework for their specific issue in life. And then the soldiers came up and said, well, what should we do? And he said, oh, for you, you know, don't, don't pressure people. Um, use your authority and be content with your wages. You're always complaining about your wages. So each one of those groups of people had different assignments. Same message of repent, different homework assignments. And so you would be thinking about who's in front of me and what the issue is. And the big point there is you hear the word by studying it. Now we need to do it. And that comes in the area of what we call homework or growth projects. And that's something I guess each one of us could do with anybody who comes to us. So you're encouraging us to ask questions of them and then direct them to something like that so there's some action. Right. Yeah, because I know we're, we really don't have that many solid biblical counselors here in town. We're working on it. Yeah. Yeah, good. More questions? Didn't you get all yours answered in school? <laughs> uh, in talking back about forgiveness, when, I think it's Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Yeah. So the Lord forgives us when we repent and seek forgiveness. Um, for those, for let's say a, a believer who has sinned against you, let's say I sin against my wife, and it takes me a week to repent. Hopefully, it doesn't. But or another brother who, in a convert in a church like this from last year, let's say a brother has sinned against you from a, you know, the, who you don't see anymore. Um, what should our hearts be? How do our hearts? Uh, we're not just to sit there and be bitter I assume and things like that but to, to have a heart of forgiveness and yet to not grant them or can you maybe explain a little bit there yes if, if you're dealing with now with two professing Christians and one sins against the other both have the obligation in the Bible to go to each other there are different verses that tell both people you ought to be meeting each other right in the middle as quickly as possible that's the point of the scripture is the, the day of offense should be the day of confession. Right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, the day of the offense is the day of reconciliation, trying to resolve it. But let's say you go to a brother who sinned against you. Uh, there's a couple of things that are helpful. One, pray. First, pray for the Spirit to bring conviction uh, on their heart and on yours. Maybe you did something that provoked them. Maybe there's a, take the log out of our own eye. Just make sure, pray. Secondly, go to the, the brother and ask questions. Did you even hear it right or, or see what was done? Was it even accurate? Because sometimes we make assumptions and we're wrong. You know, you might think, well, I, I, I saw this email. Yeah, I, but I didn't do that. that. That wasn't me. And so asking questions will help you before... Do I even ha- is there even a sin issue here? So pray, ask questions, and they say, yep, I did it, and I meant it. And it's sinful, a clear sin, a, uh, a violation of Scripture. And if they don't, if they're not under conviction of that, 
then you bring the scripture to bear on them on that one. I mean, just give it a little bit and you say, do you know what Ephesians 4.29 says about that? So the scripture is, is the standard and ought to bring some impetus there of, of conviction. They go, oh, yeah, that's, and that was wrong. Please forgive me. And it, it, it ought to incite that. If they say, I know what the scripture says. I don't really care. Oh, this is not good. You know, and it, it's not the next minute, do something, just pray. It might just take a little while. They're stubborn, uh, but not too long. And then it's a matter of saying, well, if you don't want to deal with this, then I have to bring someone else with me to help us. This is this whole spirit of Matthew 18. This is not to get rid of people. It's to try to restore them. And so I'm going to bring someone else with me to help us. Maybe I'm seeing it wrong, but that's what they said, and that's what they did, and another brother, one or two, with you to help resolve this. And if they won't, and if they're in your church, then it goes before the the whole church. I mean, now you're into the Matthew 18, but a lot of times it's someone from a different church or someone in a different town or state then as best as possible, you follow those steps. And then when it gets to the place where I can't do anymore, I don't have a church, it's not a church situation, it's a professing Christian. I've done as much as possible. I've went to them. They've sort of blown me off. They won't deal with it. Then our heart is to continue loving them. Don't pull back from your love or you'll get bitter. Keep aggressively praying for them. You know, I don't, if it's a family member, you know, when I, I had a, one of my family members was under church discipline. Not immediate family, but uh, extended family. And when we get together at reunions, I'd go up to him and I'd hug him, I'd embrace him. I loved him. But he was under church discipline. And I just pray for him. I just, and God graciously helped him turn uh, years later. And so the response is Romans twelve eighteen is as much as possible, as depends on you, live at peace with all men. And that verse just tells you it's not going to be possible to resolve everything. As much as, de- as possible as depends on you, you try to live at peace with them and do what's right. So when I see someone that has... Uh, clearly sinned against me I've gone to them I've talked with them I've tried to get someone else involved it didn't go anywhere and when I see them I'm going to be kind to them I'm going to reach out to them I'm not the one running or feeling bad they're the one who may not want to see me coming but I just want them to know I love them I care for them I continue to pray for them but that sin caused a breach and that sin always does that and just means our our friendship relationship is strained until that's dealt with. So, yeah. So you're saying you don't need to go tell everybody else what's what they've done. No. You don't need to go to their pastor or their church that they're at. Well, depending on the the sin that's involved in, if I can't resolve it, and I know they're in another church, and I don't know anyone who knows them, I may be calling one of their church leaders and saying could you help us here uh, this person left his wife there is absolutely no grounds to leave his wife he's at your church we've tried to talk with him he won't listen to us could you help us to resolve this 
how, how can you balance that with not gossiping? Because there's a thin line there. Yeah, and usually gossip has malice as a heart attitude. Uh, you want the other person to hurt and to pay. Love is I want that person uh, to be right with God and right with his fellow man. Love is I want that person to deal with the sin in their life and God's glory restored there. Um, gossip and slander. Gossip is usually saying truth about someone behind their back to hurt them. And slander usually adds lies to it behind to, to hurt the person. So there's malice. I, I don't, that's tattletaling. You know, when a, they, a brother tells on his brother, Mom, so and so is doing what you said don't do. Is that because you love your brother or you want to see your brother spanked? You know, malice is a, I, I don't like that person. I want them to be hurt. And love is I want them to be right with God and to grow in their faith. Okay. Thank you. I have a brother <clears throat> who attended a church on the East Coast a number of years ago. And he was sort of agnostic in his way of looking at life and his pastor witnessed to him many times and he just rejected it he had sort of an intellectual uh, outlook on life had an answer for everything well they were pals because they both liked to hunt and fish and mountain climb and that relationship developed to the point where the pastor really was getting frustrated with my brother not responding to the gospel. Well, he was a pilot, and he took my brother up in a single-engine plane. And he witnessed once more to him rejection. And all of a sudden, he went into a nosedive. And my brother grabbed him and said, Hey, what are you doing? And the pastor very calmly said, where will you be, Raj, in five seconds after we hit? And here they're going down, straight down. Well, my brother made an immediate decision. <laughs> he said, okay, 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 set this thing down, I'll do it, I'll do it. Well, he invited Christ to be a Savior. And for the next 10 years, there was a dramatic change in his life. He was interested in Bible study and uh, spent time going to church and doing all those things that a normal Christian should do. Well, I was in communication with him, and I thought, man, Lord, you've answered our prayer. He has come to know you, and he's uh, supporting us in our ministry. Things are going great. But then all of a sudden, something happened. He turned against the church. He turned against conversation about anything spiritual. In fact, finally, after so many conversations on the phone, he, he said very adamantly, don't talk to me about spiritual things again. And I realized the severity of that, and so I agreed. I will not bring up the subject about Christianity again. I have kept that promise. And that's very difficult to spend time with your relative when you've made a promise like that. Well, we thought it was a lost cause. The other day we got a Christmas card from him. 
I don't know what's happening, but maybe you could make some comment about that kind of scenario. What what uh, the Christmas card? Something must have been. You mean that's the first that he's ever reached out to you? Yeah. Well, I I don't know all the specifics. You know, that's what's hard with um, a situation like that is for me to try to give answers when I don't know all of the the details. I I've not talked with him. I don't know where he's at. I can just tell you initial how it sounds to me and probably most people in here is that it was not genuine faith that he had I wouldn't trust any kind of decision and a nosedive um, I mean I'd do anything get this thing on the ground we know that people can have activity church activity the seed that's planted some grows up and has all kinds of looks like life but it had no root in uh, the parable of the sower so we know people can have lots of activity and may not be genuinely a believer a lot of people go to church and give and serve and various things but not out of a heart in response to the gospel so when a person takes sort of rejects the faith and it's not a day but it continues on the, the Bible doesn't have any picture of that, of a believer doing that. So more than likely what happened was there was some response generated on his own, but it wasn't a grace gift of God and a, a repentance and faith that perseveres. And I, I, we've had a, a family member that was like that who made profession, then didn't want anything to do with it. And we, whenever we were with the person we would bring up Christ not all the time but a lot and finally they just said to us please don't the more you do that the more I want to get away from you and so we we did we pulled back we did. they knew the gospel your brother knows the gospel so it's a matter of prayer and love praying for them loving them uh, asking God to have mercy on them and for our family member God was gracious and saved them and I would say that's a, a very good... There's always hope while they're alive. So the fact your brother's still alive, there's hope. I mean, even a criminal on the cross the last few hours of their life. And so the fact that he's now coming back with a, even a Christmas card, that's a good sign that there's some sort of a relationship. That's what's most important there, just a relationship, a loving relationship that's not going to judge him, get all over him, um, but love and care for him. And maybe God's really doing a work there, and that's a good encouragement there. Yeah. So we are not going to be continuing our dive-bombing flight uh, uh, evangelism program that we had started. Sorry about that. Uh, as was said at the very intro, um, Stuart has a number of books. You can find them on Amazon. Some great counseling helps. Uh, he's a, a foremost authority in this area. And, and if you have, if this is exciting, hey, this is neat. You know, I can really help my friends. Each one of us have a position to do that within the church. I welcome you to go online, get some of them. I know I've had one of your books at least, and also men, leading men, leadership stuff. And uh, we'll probably be looking into some of that. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, <clears throat> those are the kind of things that are available to you. I really uh, recommend that you guys do that. 
Thank you for the questions. I wish we had another two hours, but uh, we don't want to wear you out. Thank you so much. Let me close in prayer for Stuart and his family. God, thank you so much that we had a morning like this to stop and realize, but you, you are the one that is uh, in charge of all things. You are the one that oversees it. You're the one that has a plan far beyond ours. And we look back in this last year, we see many events. We see your hand in them. We see excitement on where you're taking this church, what you're doing with us. We pray for those who are not here, who were here last year, and may you put more events in their lives. May they grow in their nurture and their knowledge and their love of you. May they fall under some solid teaching and leadership that will bring them in a similar path. And you can do like Paul and Barnabas, and you can split both and and have both of them grow in knowledge and have it be for your kingdom's sake. Be with Stuart and his family. Thank you for bringing them here at Christmas time and uh, here to our church to give us a word of wisdom, a word of encouragement, a word of love. May you uh, bless his ministry wherever they're heading, whatever they're doing, however you're having them minister in the weeks, the months, the years to come. And we look forward to uh, meeting in heaven again someday as your kingdom is so quickly coming as we see around us. Uh, may we go out from here and bless you this week in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys.